Please stay tuned for Forthright Radio. Welcome to this Forthright Radio for April 7th, 2021. I'm Joy LaClaire. Returning to Forthright Radio is Rob Dunn, who is a biology professor in the Department of Applied Ecology at North Carolina State University. He conducts a public science lab which engages citizen scientists around the world via the website robdunnlab.com. His latest book, Delicious, The Evolution of Flavor and How It Made Us Human, has just been published by Princeton University Press. And even though that sounds super academic, Rob writes for the general audience in a humorous and easily understood way. He is the science teacher I wish I had had in high school. To be concise, Rob Dunn is fun. We spoke with him on April 5th, 2021. Rob, the last time you were a guest on Forthright Radio was two years ago, just after the publication of your book, Never Home Alone, From Microbes to Millipedes, Camel Crickets and Honeybees, The Natural History of Where We Live. And that was about two years after your earlier book, Never Out of Season, How Having the Food We Want, When We Want It, Threatens Our Food Supply and Our Future. Now, your latest book, Delicious, The Evolution of Flavor and How It Made Us Human, returns to the subject of humans, food, and the ecological and evolutionary relationship between the two. You co-wrote it with Monica Sanchez, who's a medical anthropologist. Now, in the prologue titled Eco-Evolutionary Gastronomy, you begin with an epigraph from none other than Eric Schlosser, author of Fast Food Nation, and here's the quote, The human craving for flavor has been a largely unacknowledged and unexamined force in history. End of the quote. What led you to acknowledge and examine it, and just what do you mean by eco-evolutionary gastronomy? Well, it's a wonderful question, and I'm so delighted to be back on the show, Joy. When we started writing this book, we had the idea that it would be a very simple book. It would be about food and flavor, and it would be a series of stories about their intersection. And, and because I'm an ecologist, I'm a evolutionary biologist, and Monica is an anthropologist, it would also be at the intersection of those fields. But as we started to write, we realized that what we were describing was actually a more novel phenomenon than we imagined it to be, that it was sort of a big idea that allowed us to think about history and prehistory in a new way. And it reflects that Schlosser quote, which is essentially that although we think about flavor all the time, it's not been taken very seriously in academic at the edge of a whole bunch of different fields. And so what we really did in this book was to wrangle those fields together and hold those edges next to each other and see what we could see about the past. And so this book is then the argument that when we do that, what we see is that throughout our past, flavor was extraordinarily important and not this frivolous thing just associated with high food and very expensive coffee, but in, instead something really central to who we are. And then to go back to the eco-evolutionary part, that flavor really unites what's happening today with our interaction between us as humans and other species and what's happened over much longer timescales, those evolutionary timescales. And, and so flavor then becomes this unifying thing. And convenient for writing a book, 
it's unifying and also really, really fun to, to write about and to think about and to talk to people about. And so I hope it's a, an exciting book to read. It was a wonderfully exciting book to, to write. Of course, in order to do the research, you did have to go to many different places in the world and taste many different kinds of things. So I want to acknowledge your heroic efforts in that regard. So on behalf of the reader, we ate truffles and we had <laughs> dinner party after dinner party and had really great cheese. And we did it for you, dear reader. Speaking for a grateful, grateful populace, we, we bow to you. <laughs> but it's a really fun read, as all of your books are that I have had the luxury of reading. It doesn't come till the very end of the book, a juicy bit of etymology of we are homo sapiens, and sapiens is usually translated as wise, but you go one step back to the Latin sapientia. Tell us about that and how it so neatly ties what you're doing together. So what we write is the search for flavor is even embedded in our very name. Homo sapiens, the name of our species, is often said to mean knowing sapiens, human homo. But sapiens originates in a verb meaning to taste and later to have discernment. So one might then also read the name of our species as the human homo who discerns through taste sapiens or flavors. We discern and choose through flavors, but we also search, research, and learn by tasting and are uniquely suited to doing so together with others of our species, whether around a fire or at a table. I think for us, this is just lucky realities of the history of, of the word that it comes back around in this way. But what, what a wonderful thing that buried in that root is a little bit of flavor and discernment. We were tickled when we found that. I, like many people, didn't give this much thought before reading your book. I just assumed our ancestors were hungry and so they ate. But that is the most superficial version of the issue. You explore the actual co-evolution of foods and species, including our ancestors. And you also brought out the science of what flavor is. Now, that's another thing I never really thought of. And it's only recently that scientists were able to actually figure out the pathways of flavor. So would you talk about that a little bit? Sure, and maybe in, in two parts. That first part of the, what animals are really doing in nature. And I think in general, the assumption has just been to, to think, well, okay, animals are hungry and they go and find what they need, with where what they need is in quotes. And what ecologists have done when thinking about this is to assume animals act optimally, that somehow they go out in, into nature and find exactly the optimal things they need given what's available. And there are literally hundreds, maybe thousands of papers written about how chimpanzees optimally find their food or wolves optimally find what they need. But what everybody agrees about, but nobody talks about very much, is that those choices, if they are ever optimal, they're always made in light of the senses that come together to compose flavor. And so when the chimpanzee is making a choice about do I eat this or do I eat that, there may be some complicated thing going on with regard to like, which is more what I need. But ultimately, whatever is happening in the brain is processed through those senses. And so it always has to hinge on flavor in one way or another. And what's amazing about flavor is that 
it's in some ways our most complex sensory experience because it takes all of the senses together in some way. And so you look at a food and so it has its visual appearance. And we all have the experience of sometimes eating things that eventually have a good flavor, but they don't look good. And in the end, taste quite as good as if they looked better. And that's true with chimpanzees and other species out in the wild, too, that they prefer things that look to them pleasing. There's this sound of the food. And so industry has put lots of money into making potato chips sound a particular way that's pleasing. But then even once the food gets into your mouth, you have taste, which is what your tongue perceives. And it's via taste receptors. And so that's sour, sweet, umami, kukumi, which is kind of this mysterious thing, salty, bitter. And that's kind of the most primitive part of flavor. But it's really what's in an ancient way guided us. Then you have mouthfeel, which is the sense of touch in the mouth. And culinary people talk about mouthfeel all the time. But if you if you mention it as a scientist, you sound very silly. And yet it's to sort of imagine thinking about, well, what, what is the mouthfeel of the food of the tiger to the tiger? And, and yet it has a mouthfeel. And so mouthfeel is interesting. And then there's chemisthesis, which is the sense associated with things like spicy peppers or menthol. It's kind of related to taste, but it's really a separate system. And then there's the magical sense of smell. And you perceive smell in front of your face when you sniff something. And so you go about the world the way a dog might sniffing the world. But we also perceive smell once foods are in our mouths. And that's called retronasal smell. And so the smells go from a piece of cheese on your tongue up to the back of your mouth and around to the back of your nose where they're detected. And so what an individual bite of food has all of these things, senses together, and that collective sensation is flavor. And all of that together is part of why it was also maybe took us so long to begin to understand flavor because it was nobody's purview entirely. Everybody had a partial view on it. So then the second thing, once you have that sense of flavor, is to think, well, how does that operate out in the world? What does a wild species do when it makes a decision in light of flavor? And what we argue in the book is that there are really two very separate components to that. And, and one is what taste leads animals to do. And the other is what taste plus smell leads animals to do. And taste is really the more in instinctive component. And smell is all about learning. And so... And I'll just pause there, but just say that the way we think about taste is that it essentially guides us to what our ancestors on average tended to need. And so on average, a mammal needs more salt than it gets in, their, in its diet. And so we have salt taste receptors. A mammal needs more nitrogen. And so we have umami taste receptors that reward us for finding nitrogen. A mammal needs more sugar than a typical diet would have. And so sweet taste receptors reward it. And then bitter and sour in most species lead, lead them to avoid particular foods. And so taste is kind of this carrot and stick. And then olfaction is way more complex. And so that, that's, where, that's where we begin as we start to unpack these things. We are speaking in April of 2021 after a year of a pandemic in which one of the symptoms can be loss of taste and loss of smell. So I think that that's just an interesting little side issue here. You are very generous, Rob Dunn, in attributing the work of scientists you reference. And one of them is Toshi Nashida, who did 
decades of work with chimpanzees in Mahali Mountain National Park. Talk about his work. So at about the same time, maybe six months later, that Jane Goodall started working at Gombe to study chimpanzees, Toshi Sada and Nishida started working at Mahali, which is like 70 kilometers south of Gombe, so really super close. So close that a chimpanzee could actually go from one site to the other. Probably not very often, but it's possible. And he began to study many of the same kinds of things that Goodall would go, would go on to study. And, and so it became a really interesting comparison over the years. But one of the things he was very interested in was the food choices the chimpanzees were making. And so one of the things he did to try to figure out why they made the choices that they did was he actually followed one of the groups of chimpanzees that he studied to taste all of the foods that they ate to see how those foods tasted, to see if which things tasted good and if they preferred the things that tasted good. And so he just essentially walked beneath them or behind them, and each time they dropped a fruit, he would take a bite. And this went on for years. And so that work gives us a really amazing picture of, of what is present in the chimpanzee diet and also what's absent. And one of the things that becomes very clear is that when there are sweeter things in the chimpanzee diet, that they prefer them. They prefer the sweetest fruits that they can get. But also that the average thing that's available to them is pretty bland to them and to Nishida in this case. And so one of the ideas prompted by his work that we consider in the book is whether the use of tools by chimpanzees, which, which he studied in great detail as did Goodall, is in part a response to the dearth of great flavors in their diets. And if that were the case, what you would expect is the things that chimpanzees eat with tools tend to be more delicious. And almost universally, they are. And so they use tools to get at honey and sour ants and fatty termites and fatty nuts. And so his work really frames this possibility that tool use, this super important thing in primate evolution and our own evolution, might have at its root flavor. Yes, and since you've brought up these different populations of chimpanzees, you also introduce the concept of cuisines and cultural differences, and you used ants as an example, uh, and the selectivity. Talk about that. Yes, yeah, so, so this really amazed me when I when it, so so one of the joys of this book is we get to talk to lots of scientists and have lunch with lots of scientists and dinner and we talk to lots of people who work on chimpanzees, and one of the things that came up was this idea of culinary traditions and cuisines and the most amazing example is is this one of the ants. We're at this site that that Jane Goodall worked at and the site that Nishida worked at. The ant species that are present are basically the the same. And so are the plant species. And at both sites, the chimpanzees use sticks to get ants and then eat the ants. And they do it with what looks to be pleasure. But at the site that Jane Goodall studied, the chimpanzees use sticks to eat army ants and a kind of ant called chromatogaster. And that's what they've done for decades. That's what they still do. But at Mahali, which is, is very, very close and has chromatogaster and has army ants, the chimpanzees use sticks to eat carpenter ants. And this is widely believed to be evidence of culinary traditions that are not adaptive. They don't reflect what the chimpanzees need to do at one site versus another, but instead what they've learned to eat as part of their culinary traditions 
And so to me, this is really at the root of our own culinary traditions. And the idea that if we look around the geographic region of our ancestors, we can imagine each population learning to love slightly different things. What an amazing possibility. You mentioned the theory of the optimization of nutrients, and that means the relationship to the amount of work it takes to get the nutrients. If if you work more than you're getting, that's not such a good idea, except, I mean, maybe that's a great theory, but Dr. Vittoria Estienne, what was her observation about the work of underground bees? Yeah, this is an amazing study. So Vittoria was studying a group of chimpanzees that use big, thick sticks to pound into the ground, like six feet down, three to six feet, to get to the nest of these bees that produce honey. And they're not honey bees, or it's a different group of bees, but they nonetheless make honey. And she studied how the chimpanzees get to the nest, how much work it takes to get to them. And what she found is that the chimpanzees sometimes pound on the ground for months to get to the nest. And, and sometimes she thinks years. And what that's interesting is that when they finally get to the nest, the amount of honey in the nest, it's about 2,000 calories, which is about a day's worth of energy, maybe a day and a half. And when the chimpanzees finally get to it, they have to share with which, whichever other chimpanzees happen to be around. And so you take a day worth of food that you've worked for months to get, and then you've got to share it with your friend who you'd rather not share with. And so there's almost no way that this is optimal. It's almost certainly, though, pleasurable. And so what Vittoria thinks is that they just really like the honey. And so it's, it's worth it to them to pound for months or even years to get to it because it's good, not because it's optimal. I think when we think of other species as being kind of like robots, we do them a disservice. And to imagine that the chimpanzees can make mistakes and can just give in to their pleasure in the same way that we do, I think is a, it's a more generous portrait of who they are. We're speaking with Professor Rob Dunn. His latest book is Delicious, The Evolution of Flavor and How It Made Us Human. Okay, so there's a lot more we could say about flavor and taste. You go into the more recent scientific research identifying how we actually how taste actually works physiologically, which we won't go into now. People can read your book for that. But it turns out that smell is a much more important sense than we modern humans usually give it credit for. Talk about that and its role in this evolutionary process. Smell has really been neglected for a long time. In the last decade or so, it started to be featured more often by neuroscientists. And we now know how the little receptors in the nose work to capture chemicals that are in the air. We've started to understand, and this is the royal we, this is very much not the work we do, Monica and I, but the understanding has really begun to grow in the last decade or a couple of decades. And one of the things that's emerged is that the sense of smell in humans is much more central than we tend to think it is. And, and maybe it's so central that it's easy to overlook because its consequences are kind of embedded in everything that we do. And one of the ways that we see that is in the context of learning flavor. And so if you think about which foods you like and which foods you don't like, and you've talked to a group of people, very quickly you'll find there are some foods that you like that other people don't like and vice versa. 
And this is especially true if you're talking to somebody from a different food culture. And so how does this happen? And w- one of the things that the work of Gordon Shepard, who's written really elegantly about this and, and other neuroscientists has shown, is that part of the way these differences in food cultures emerge is through learning that happens at the interface of smell and the brain. And so what we argue in the book is that the smell and the brain kind of work together like a kind of card catalog. And this dates us, we know, but it's it's a perfect analogy. So we nonetheless use it. So a card catalog you used to use to find your way in a library before computers. And so there were cards for subjects and cards for titles and cards for authors. And smell works in the brain in this way. So if you smell, Joy, uh, let's say you smell a Cabrales blue cheese, which smells like blue cheese, but it's unique in its chemistry. In your brain, that smell will be recorded and it will get a subject, which is maybe blue cheese, maybe it's Cabrales blue cheese. But then the memory is also recorded. And then the other thing that's recorded in your brain is a kind of valence, a kind of Yelp score for the experience. And so if you really loved the experience of eating that cheese, it gets a positive score. And so this kind of builds during our lifetime so that each food smell has a category, it has a set of memories, and it has a set of scores. And it's through that process that we learn to like some smells and their associated flavors and dislike others. And so this is really at the root of how we learn to like some foods and not other foods. And we can talk more about it later, but it seems like humans are actually really unique in how much this is part of our biology. But then the other cool thing is that this actually starts to happen in utero. So babies begin to learn which smells are good and learn to categorize smells when they're in the womb. And so they learn to love the smells of the foods that their mothers eat when their mothers are pregnant. And so great studies have now shown that if a mother is eating anise or garlic or fermented fish or blue cheese while pregnant, that their baby, when it's born, just three hours old, will make a positive face when presented with those same aromas. And so pulling this all together, smell really allows us a way to learn in general about foods, but we begin to do that learning in utero, and then we build on it with each meal so that by the time we're adults, we have this kind of library of smells that we love and a library of smells that we don't like. And all of that comes to bear on every single bite of food. And I think because it's such a complex kind of neurological architecture that it's easy to overlook that all of that's happening. It's not as simple as just a vision of something. And so we, we spend a lot of time talking about this and and how it features in our search for truffles or our enjoyment of particular cheeses. And I really think it's a kind of magical part of our biology. And you cite research, not on humans, but in mice, for example, that this transmission can go like in humans it can go one generation like the mother to child this preference but you write about this five or six generations of mice can transmit a fear response to smells very briefly talk about that please yeah, it's a really remarkable study. It's it's one study to date, and so it's hard to know how much to make of it yet. But what this study found is that when great-great-great-grandparent mice were scared while consuming a particular food, five generations later, their descendants still dislike the aroma associated with that food. And so somehow the fear associated with that aroma is being passed 
across generations. Really a, a wild finding and hard to know how much bearing it has on our own biology yet, but it really speaks to the power that smell can have, both in teaching us to love things and to, and to avoid them. And one other thing I want to comment on is the proximity and immediacy of smells to the brain and really ancient parts of the brain. And the reason I highlight that is because I have multiple chemical sensitivities and it took me a very long time to understand why I experienced the effects so quickly because I had previously thought that it involved, okay, I inhale, it goes through the lungs, from the lungs to the blood. That's not what's happening. It goes straight from the back of my nose into the brain. Do you have any comments on that? No, other than that, it's, it's a, a really an amazingly direct connection. I, I think, yeah, we imagine our brain as being very distant from our the daily things we do. But with, with smell, it's really right there. The olfactory receptors, the olfactory lobe sits right above them, and the olfactory lobe is part of the brain. And so it's, it's really a very direct connection to a very ancient part of the brain. We don't think of it as such. It was surprising as we began to reflect on that a little bit in writing as well. Okay, so you brought up truffles. I know you love the truffle story, so go for that. (laughs) (laughs) I also love truffles. Truffles are a fruiting body of an underground fungus associated with the roots of some trees. And so to fulfill their life wish, they have to get from one fungus to another tree. They have to travel. And so how, how do they get to another fungus, to another tree? How do they make that move? And so what, what they do is that they produce smells that attract mammals to dig them out of the ground, eat them, and then carry them to a new spot, to a new tree where they can form new associations. And we've known about this in some way or another for a long, long time. But as the details have begun to be resolved, they're really intricate and species-specific. And so one set of the details is that one of the groups of animals that really is good at finding truffles and good at dispersing these truffles from one tree to another is pigs. And it looks as though that part of why pigs are so good at dispersing the truffles is that the truffles are actually producing both an aroma that the pigs can smell from a long distance and a chemical that mimics the sex pheromone of the pigs. And so the truffles down there underground just waiting to find a way to get to a new tree, a new spot. And it it does so by, from an aromatic perspective, appearing to be a sexy pig. And so on its own, that's pretty amazing. But the other part of that is that when we go looking for truffles today as humans, one of the ways to find them is to rely on pigs looking for sexy truffles. And so people still do this today. But the other way to find them is to train dogs to find truffles. And dogs don't innately like truffles, but they can be taught to find them and are very good at sniffing them. But the neat thing about the story of the pigs and the dogs and the humans is that each of our noses experiences the truffles in a slightly different way. And so to the pig, they're somehow sexy in a way we can't quite know. To the dog, they're mostly experienced through sniffing and so through orthonasal smells, the smell that comes in through the end of the nose. And then for us, they're mostly experienced in the mouth. And so it's the retronasal smell. And so we feature truffles in the book, both because they're delicious and wonderful and their biology and story are interesting, 
but also because they then tell us a little bit about how different mammals perceive the world. And so a pig, a human, and a, and a dog in confronting the truffle really don't confront the same thing at all, which is, is fun to think about, but then also has lots of consequences for how we change the world, too. There's a lot of things in what you just said. There's, first of all, the evolutionary events that led to the truffles having this sexy pig smell. Then <laughs> there is also the differences in the way humans smell and the way other animals smell. Let's focus on that part and how it was a process that inevitably led to small changes over time, millennia, and even millions of years, that included our becoming upright, bipedal, and even the shape of our heads and our faces. Talk about those changes, please. I think the change most germane to the truffle is that as we became bipedal and there are a series of evolutionary changes in primates that lead to changes in our skulls. And so th those changes begin with changes that feature the eyes. And so in our primate ancestors, bigger eyes evolved to take advantage of uh, the ability to see fruits and to perceive dangers. And as those bigger eyes evolve, the face shifts. And so the nose becomes less pronounced. And so... It becomes a nose that's less like a dog's nose and really less effective at sniffing things out in the world. And so in a way, that change, the evolution of bigger eyes, leads to a biology for our ancestors that features sniffing a little bit less and features the smells in the mouth a little bit more. As that evolutionary change is happening, Daniel Lieberman at Harvard University argues that another change that was happening is that there's a little bone in most mammal species that makes it somewhat difficult for smells to go from the mouth up around to the nose. And in primates, as the face is being evolutionarily reconstructed, that bone disappears. And so there just wasn't room for it anymore. And so it meant that smells could go from the mouth into the back of the nose more readily. And so that was another kind of change. And so on its own, that left primates in a position to really feature flavors more so than did other species around them. But then another transition that was really important in this context is when our ancestors started to spend more time upright. And so as they spent that time upright, it became harder and harder to sniff things on the ground, or at least less convenient. And so sniffing became featured even a little bit less. And so if you think about it, the way a dog goes around the world, its nose is constantly on the ground. If a chimpanzee or a gorilla wants to sniff something from the ground, it will actually tend to pick it up and hold it up to its nose. And so that really makes sniffing things outside of your body in the world a different kind of endeavor. And so all of these changes and some other changes lead to a biology for our ancestors and for our modern relatives, gorillas and chimpanzees and bonobos and the like, in which sniffing is really not very important anymore. And so maybe this is also part of why we tend to think of smell as not very important, because we're just not as good at sniffing. We're not a, our world is not a dog's world. But what I think was missed for a long time in Lieberman and Gordon Shepard really began to highlight this absence, is that at the same time, the smells that were in our mouth 
we're becoming ever more featured. And so these changes, which with regard to our evolution, might not necessarily have always been advantageous. They might have been kind of neutral, but they changed our experience of food. And so when our ancestors then began to move out around the world and to then also process foods by digging them out, by cooking them, by fermenting them, they had heads that were really predisposed to appreciate those smells in the mouths. And so they were they were kind of pre-adapted to a world of culinary cultures and foods. And so this then would be our lot. And so in a way that truffle story is kind of fun and silly because truffles are an unusual, expensive, strange food. But on the other hand, it's actually a pretty important story about how our the shapes of our skulls evolved and the the way we hold our bodies evolved so as to really make flavor more central than it is for other species. You mentioned cooking, and so that brings up the advent of that particular evolutionary trend. To the best of our knowledge, humans are, or the hominids, are the only ones who have cooked their food. And that also caused further changes in our skeletal structure. Very briefly, talk about what's currently thought about those changes. Yes, yeah, so, so Richard Wrangham has written a lot about how important cooking was for our ancestors, and he argues that maybe it was the defining change 1.9 million years ago that led to bigger brains, smaller teeth, and, and lots of other associated changes. And people argue a lot about that. But the other thing he noted is that whenever it happened, that the reason our ancestors would have begun to cook was because cooked foods taste better. And what's interesting is people have argued a lot about, well, when did, when did cooking first happen? Was it the most important thing or an important thing? But nobody's argued with the idea that the reason our ancestors cooked was because it tasted better, because the flavors from cooked food were better. And so it looks like this is the case, that whenever our ancestors first began to cook, that that proximate reason for doing so was because the flavors of cooked meat were better, the flavors of cooked roots were better. And once that did happen, it, it then allowed our ancestors to have more calories, food that was less likely to have pathogens, and lots of other things that would be important for their evolution. But the reason they did it in the first place seems to have been because it was delicious. Hence the title of your book, Rob Dunn, Delicious, The Evolution of Flavor and How It Made Us Human. You have a whole chapter on spices, and you have a rather broad definition of what you mean about spices. Talk about that, please. In the book, when we, when we talk about spices, we consider them to be Plants, typically plants, are sometimes animals that are added to food, not because they're nutritious in and of themselves, but because they add some flavor dimension to the food. And so this is herbs. This is spices that tend to be seeds like black pepper or fruits, actually. And what's interesting is we think of spicing food as very normal, but the vast majority of the things that we use as spices, the aromas associated with them, the tastes associated with them, are actually toxins that the plants produce to defend those plant parts from animals like us. And so at some point, our ancestors started to, to use plant parts that were advertising themselves as toxic and then adding them into their food. And, and so we consider this mystery of, of why would they do that and what is the offer to them? 
And one of the tricky things about writing about this is that it's, I think today it seems so normal to us that we use spices that it almost doesn't seem as though it needs an explanation. But the truth is not all human cultures need spices and spices appear to be actually relatively recent in our human story. We go at some length to consider why, why would we do this? Why would we consciously add toxins to our food? And how do you choose which ones to use? And that leads us to things like chilies and, and all of these associated spice mysteries. Rob, isn't one of the issues about adding things like spices to the food that the relatively recent acquiring by humans of things like vessels that could be used in cooking? Yes. Yeah, so, so the our earliest evidence of spice spice use comes from some of these first vessels. And so that is one possibility is that before you have vessels, it's harder to add spices than the way we would in, in making a stew. Although you, you could still, you know, you imagine you've got a piece of mastodon and you could put some berries on the outside for spice and then roast it. At least in theory, something like that is, is possible. But vessels seem important. Another argument is that spice use in some regions awaits agriculture and is in part a response to blander diets that emerge out of agriculture. And so maybe part of spice use is sort of adding something like variety to our food, and that could have different dimensions. And, and so Paul Rosen, who we talk about in the book, has argued that some spices with chemisthesis that we perceive as hot or spicy, that maybe we're adding those be because of a kind of benign masochism, that in adding the spice, it's kind of like going to a scary movie. It feels as though something dangerous is happening in our mouth, but we know it's going to be okay in the end. And so you, you get this rush of danger. Maybe you get some hormonal response in the brain in response to that potential danger, but then, then you know it's all going to be okay in the end. And so maybe once we were in agricultural societies, that benign masochism was more important. But the other thing that we think is important is that for a long time, and still today in many cultures, spice use in medicine was actually much more directly connected. And so food and medicine weren't so distinct as we imagine them today in Western culture. And so it's possible that in some contexts, spices were being used as a kind of medicine in the food to help to control which microbes were in the food. And so we know, for example, that garlics, garlic and onions, when added to food, actually radically change which microbes are present in that food. And so if you imagine you're cooking something in a, in a pot, you don't have refrigeration. You're not going to eat it all the first day. If the garlic can help it stay safe for one more day, then your food is much more useful to you and you're much less likely to get sick. And so probably all these things are happening at the same time in different cultures. But the net effect is we have this extraordinary global diversity of the spices that we use in some places and then other places where there few or no spices used. Well, you brought up agriculture, and I was delighted by the chicken egg story of which came first under fermentation and recent discoveries in Israel that speak to that. Please share with our listeners what's going on here. Yes, so the, the classic story of agriculture and then fermentation is that first we, we domesticate grains and then eventually we have so many stored grains that there's reason to find ways to do something with the stored grains so you can use them in new ways. And so then 
beer is invented, then bread making is invented as ways to make use of that stored grain. But always there had been this sort of sneaking suspicion that maybe it was the other way around. Maybe humans figured out how to make beer, and, and then they started to make so much beer that they had to start farming grains to make more beer. And the recent evidence actually suggests something closer to the latter idea, which is kind of the, I mean, it's a ridiculous story for our ancestral farmers, but it seems true. And so the study in Israel that you mentioned is by Lee Liu at Stanford University. And she found evidence of beer making 13,000 years ago in what is now Israel, which predates agriculture in the same region. This was beer making in sort of stone sort of small stone brewing vats. And so some of them were used to malt barley, and then some of them appear to have been used to, to brew that barley. And cl- clearly before agriculture, and very unlikely to be the first beer making, because what we almost always find in archaeology is something relatively late in the story, because you just have a few samples in the archaeological record from which to, to see this story. And so the odds that they're the first time somebody tried something is very, very low. And so most archaeologists who think about this now imagine beer brewing probably is actually quite a bit more ancient even than that. And so I think we're going to have to change the children's history books to say that first our ancestors made beer and and then they needed more crops to get a little more drunk. (laughs) And we referred to vessels earlier. At this site, it was bedrock and then boulders that were carved to make the vessels for this brewing process. So this even predates ceramics and that sort of thing. Very briefly, since we're almost out of time, talk about fermentation and mastodons and mammoths and experiments that were done about that. So Dan Fisher, who's, who's a paleoanthropologist, mammologist at the University of Michigan, found a number of years ago now sites at which he saw what looked like evidence that a mastodon had been butchered, pushed into a pond, and then tethered to a group of stones at the bottom of the pond. And Fisher's interpretation was that what had happened is that Clovis peoples in what is now Michigan had done this in order to ferment the mastodon so that they could continue to eat it over months and over the winter. And he thought this was likely a, a pretty important thing because this is a pretty important part of Clovis culture because you can imagine if you're a small family, you kill a mastodon. If you have a way to store that meat, you can feed off it for a long time. But he, he didn't know how to, to test whether this was really possible And then a friend of his ended up with a dead horse. And so Fisher said, can I borrow your horse? Fisher used stone tools to butcher the horse, put it in a pond, and repeat the fermentation the way he imagined it would have worked. And he was able to show that the horse was still edible after five months and had a a blue cheese-like flavor, and it was a little bit sour. It was like steak and uh, Cabrales cheese all in one. And and so his suggestion is that the fermentation of meat is likely to have been very common in, in northern cultures, potentially very, very early. So we've talked about redoing that experiment and looking at some of the microbes more, but we haven't done it yet. The, the term Neanderthal was used recently as a pejorative, and that got a really strong reaction from some people. 
And among other things, your book shows how very, very intelligent our ancestors had to be to take advantage of observing things in nature and then building on them to their advantage. We're just about out of time, Rob Dunn. I want to give you one moment to give final words to our listeners. Thank you for having me on the show, Joy. And I guess I would just say that what I hope we've done in the book is to shine a new light on our past. And we don't propose to have solved any of these great mysteries of our past. But for us, we've been successful if we've We've led people to think about these moments in the past in a, in a new way that leads to some new understanding, both of the past and of your daily life in the kitchen. I hope it does, because I think that thinking about f- flavor across all of this time is both interesting and hopefully makes you look at your refrigerator and cabinets in a whole new way. Well, Rob Dunn, thank you so much for joining us again on Forthright Radio. One more question. Are you still continuing with your citizen science projects? We are, yep. Uh, And right now we have a wild sourdough project that people can participate if they're interested, but, but others to come. And if listeners want to learn about that, where would they go? Uh, just to the Rob Dunn lab, and, and, and they'll, they'll find it there very quickly. Thanks again, Rob Dunn. We very much appreciate your work. Oh, what a pleasure, Joy. It's, it's so fun to talk to you. Our guest today on Forthright Radio has been University of North Carolina Professor of Applied Ecology, Rob Dunn. We discussed his latest book, Delicious, The Evolution of Flavor and How It Made Us Human, published by Princeton University Press. You can find out more about his work and his public science lab, which engages citizen scientists around the world via the website robdunlab.com, and Dunn is spelt D-U-N-N. Now, a lighthearted musical interlude before we return with more public affairs.
Opinions expressed on Forthright Radio are those of the speaker and do not necessarily represent those of this station's staff, its members, board of directors, or contributors. Forthright Radio is a Beyond the Deep End production. I'm Joyla Clare. You can hear past Forthright Radio programs by going to our website, forthright.media. As we broadcast, Derek Chauvin the infamous Minneapolis chauvinist, is on trial for the murder of George Floyd on May 25, 2020. We share a song by Tom Prasada Rao, recorded on May 28, 2020. We hear the recording he did with the Fox Run 5 on June 10, 2020. It's called $20 Bill. Some people die for honor Some people die for love Some people die while singing To 
the heavens above Some people die believing In the cross on Calvary Hill Some people die In the blink of an eye For a twenty dollar bill
If you enjoyed this podcast, you can go to kzyx.org to find more shows and content like this one. While there, you can stream us live or check out our jukebox. And if you like what you hear, consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. We are Mendocino County Public Broadcasting, listener-supported community radio. KZYX, Philo, 90.7 FM, KZYZ, Woolitz and Ukiah, 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM. Thanks for listening.